Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Ezra Dyer. Why don't you tell people what you do? Uh, I'm an editor at Car and Driver Magazine, and I write about cars. Is it as appealing and as interesting as it seems, or is it more mundane? Usually it is as appealing and interesting as it seems, and I'm frequently reminded of that by many people that I know, (laughs) that I should not take it for granted or uh, complain about anything that I'm doing. (laughs) If I'm driving a, a car that maybe I'm not that excited about, I'm still driving a car, and evaluating it and write about it. So it's a, it's a fun thing to do. So before we jump too much into the cars and, and the main thing, um, a little about you, where are you from originally? I grew up in Maine and um, kind of fell into the car thing there naturally because we were out in the middle of the woods on 30 acres and my parents didn't know what to do with me when I was 11. And we around that time had a Subaru wagon that we were trying to sell because it was almost dead and no one would buy it for 500 bucks. So they just said, all right, you can go drive that out around out in the woods on the back 30. So I was 11, my brother was nine and they turned us loose with this thing and they started out riding with us and uh, supervising. And then eventually we're just like, all right, you got it. You could go for it. And uh, so we were, driving around out in the woods at age 11 in Maine and kind of went from there with motorized things, uh, snowmobiles and four wheelers. And then when I eventually finally got my license, uh, my IROC. And, um, so even at that time I was always reading car magazines and obsessing about cars. And, you know, I think I was planning what my first car was for roughly, you know, from age 10 onward. (laughs) And, uh, what was that? So I've even still got, you know, uh, classifieds, print classifieds from then. I can look back at what I circled, what I was interested in. (laughs) What what kind of car were you looking at? What did you ideally want to have as your first car? I really was interested in, I really wanted a Camaro or something along those lines. And uh, then around the time when I was ready to actually get a car, I found uh, the the, uh, IROC for sale. (laughs) And it was actually priced in a range that I could swing and had like a hundred thousand miles on it and, uh, bought it from a priest who had driven it up from Florida and he had tinted out windows and a car phone. And, uh, <laughs> the vanity place said Christian on it. And, uh, so I bought it from him. And then that was my car for the next two years. Nice. I, I, my first car was a, a 1984 four-door Chevy Cavalier that I believe I was purchased from an older lady who just couldn't drive anymore. Um, I've kind of sort of been around cars since I was a teenager. My brother is real big into them. He actually used to kind of buy them, build them to race, throw them on a track, destroy them, and not wreck them, just just beat the piss out of them. Um, I think he went through like two or three 1970 Camaros, ripping out the engines, then he went to moved to the Mustangs, um, but his, his first car and, and my, my love of cars are the old muscle cars. Um, 1970 Buick GSX is, will always forever be my favorite car. 
because my mother had one and it was just it just embodied that muscle sound and power to it well that's kind of the the reason why people read about cars is because there's this um there for most people there's a gap between your cavalier reality and your gs uh dreams and you want to read about it and experience it vicariously through jerks like me who go and drive those cars. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure I qualify you as a jerk just because you get to drive nice cars. Oh, well, you know. what was, uh, what drove you to being, to wanting to be a writer for uh, about cars and, and automotive? The writer thing was basically because I eventually learned that I wasn't good at anything else. And I really <laughs> tried, you know, I, I had this idea even pretty far into college that, well, I can't really, I can't do that, even though that seems to be what I'm good at because that's not a viable career option. So I was taking physics and computer science and thinking I was going to go in more of an engineering direction or something like that. And I just wasn't very good at it and didn't really enjoy that kind of thing. My mind will work that way, but it's not, it's not like my natural inclination to get into, uh, to grasp calculus. So, and then I was doing fairly well at writing and, uh, in college wrote for the, wrote for the college newspaper, had a column there. And then when I got out of college, I just said, well, I'm going to give this a try for like a year or two. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll go to law school or something. I don't know. And, uh, I got a column in a magazine called the improper Bostonian in Boston, pretty much right out of college based on my column that I had in, um, in the college newspaper, the, the publisher there said, Hey, keep doing what you're doing there here. And it was a humor column. It's difficult to be funny in print. I mean, I know because it's difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that was sort of my, that became my entry into writing about cars because after I was writing for that magazine, I figured, okay, now I have some credibility to, talk to car magazines and pitch them. And, um, I'm already employed somewhere and I don't write about cars yet, but there's, you know, in the Venn diagram of people who can write and people who know a lot about cars, there's not that much overlap. You know, it's not like saying going straight to like, I want to be on the New York times editorial page, or I want to write, uh, you know, sports was one that like, Oh, everybody wants to write about sports. Cars was a little bit more of a specific thing. And that was part of my advice for other people who were asking, how do I become a writer? So like, well, start by writing something that you yourself know a lot about because there will naturally be fewer people who uh, can do that. Right. So that's what I did. Uh, one from the improper Bostonian um, pitched automobile and they, and they gave me a shot at writing about my IROC. <laughs> <laughs> Or a sidebar on a the new the then new Camaro that was coming out, and uh, that's how I got my foot in the door there. And then it took a few more years to get rolling, but um, my my strategy, such as it was, was I'm going to keep writing the way that I write for the Improper Bostonian, but about cars, right. and try to have a funny approach to it. So the first big story I did for automobile, I bought a $350 Cadillac Eldorado and I brought it to a short-lived festival in Maine. It uh, didn't go on, I think even one year after the one I went to called the, it was the Hiram Maxim Historical Society Festival. And uh, Hiram Maxim was the inventor of the machine gun. 
And I, as I came to find out, all these uh, <laughs> lunatics have automatic weapons, and they gather in like a gravel pit in Maine, and they shoot at cars. So I said, well, here's, um, here's a Cadillac for you. And uh, they, they um, finished off the Cadillac pretty good. <laughs> the full tank of gas, it like burned down. <laughs> they, they strapped a... They strapped it, you know, this was circa 2001, so they, 2002, they strapped a chainsaw carving of Osama bin Laden to it, um, and he had a moss beard, and they named him Osama bin Laden, because it was made. <laughs> and then they, again, things that I didn't realize were legal to have and, and own and use, they had dynamite that they strapped to him, and then when you shoot the dynamite, it explodes, <laughs> so they strapped Osama bin Laden to the Cadillac and shot the dynamite, and that's how things kind of kicked off and went from there. So it was hard to talk. I was like, what's my second story going to be? <laughs> kind of hard to t- top all that. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I know what it's like to destroy a car uh, with your own actions. I, uh, my, my lovely Cavalier, Cavalier that I, I, I absolutely love that car. It handled turns like it was on rails. It was a great car. It happened to lose the transmission, the brakes, and exhaust all in one trip home one night. And I limped it to my rescue squad and proceeded to beat the shit out of it with a sledgehammer for an hour and a half. It was very cathartic. <laughs> I guess if you decide your car is totaled, you may as well totally. Totally, yeah. It was it was it was very cathartic. I I did do a story where I bought a Cadillac Cimarron, which was the Cadillac Cavalier for $1,250 in North Carolina here. And I drove it down to the Mecham auction in uh, Florida where I had the, the silliest car to auction, but it was, I I mean, it drove great. It was, it ran fine. It was perfectly civilized on the highway for 1,250 bucks, you know, basically a Cavalier. Did it sell? uh, (laughs) It sold at auction for $1,250. So it was like, I got a free, free drive to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) And I just had to get back. So in to your, your writing, do you exclusively write for car and driver now, or is it you write a number of articles to various uh, publications? Um, It's pretty much all car and driver now. Sometimes I might um, sneak over to other uh, portals in the Hearst universe. Like I was the uh, prior car and driver, the, automotive editor for popular mechanics. So sometimes I, uh, contribute things over there. I haven't lately, but you know, if I, if I knock on the door on Slack and have something that might be more popular mechanics than car and driver, then that's, that's kind of the way it works. So that's typically um, like the tech type, the new tech going on in cars and things. Um, it could just be, it could be something not entirely car related, you know, um, because popular mechanics covers everything. So right. it could be, you know, ATVs or e-bikes or something like that. Um, but I used to write for, uh, when the New York times had an auto section wrote for them, I've written for Esquire, um, the improper. I was still writing my humor column until 2018 when the whole magazine went under. <laughs> That's a good reason to stop writing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The victims of Facebook, but um, so yeah, I produced videos for Yahoo for a while. So I've done a bunch of different, different things. It's generally centered around cars, but not always. I've written, um, pieces for the Boston globe that were 
not about cars. I think I wrote one about my Jeopardy tryout, um, which wasn't even like I, not even like I was on Jeopardy, but just taking the taking the test to be on Jeopardy. But <laughs> that's still funny when you get destroyed at it. When you think that you're good at Jeopardy and then you take that test, that's it humbles you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's and but it also anything that humbles you is usually good writing material. You know, any um, frustrating or inconvenient thing that happens you think all right i could at least make something out of this before i get go back into to the writing thing what are some of your your favorite movies involving cars or or centered around cars um you know that's tough because movies about cars tend to be or movies where cars are central tend to be kind of horrible movies. Like everyone thinks Ronin is a great car movie, but it's a bad movie. You know, it has great car chases and I like to watch the car chases in Ronin, but I don't want to sit through the whole thing. Same with Bullet, like great car chase through San Francisco. I don't want to watch all of Bullet. Um, Really probably the best one. I mean, the Blues Brothers, because that's a good movie and has excellent car chases and a good sense of humor about it. And that's kind of hard to put together. Talladega Nights, probably the same way. You might say <laughs> loosely based on cars, but I tend to go for, you know, I like comedies. And uh, say what you will about Fast and Furious, but they've kind of, they've taken automotive, you know, movie car chase. They've taken it very mainstream, which it wasn't before. It was always kind of like uh, more of a, a hokey I mean, it's still hokey with Fast and Furious, but it's popular. You know, yeah. it, it basically Fast and Furious proved that car nerd stuff could be popular with a mass audience. Right. Oh, I, I mean, I enjoy those movies. They're just kind of silly. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I, I, I think they're they're fun to watch. Um, they get a little little crazy, you know, like the. Uh, in the middle of the race, they when they they're really punching it, that that whole CGI breakdown of like the gas going through the engine and powering everything. You see the mechanics; it's um, good good visuals. But uh, I, I like the fact that they blended the old school. You know, was that a Challenger that he had, and then the yes. new stuff um, like the they Arthur. were you know what they were kindly referred to as rice rockets and things like that are easily tuned cars that. Are, Super small and compact, lightweight that you can throw some boost in and they fly. Well, whatever the Fast and Furious sensibility is, it's at least informed by you can tell people who know cars. Yeah. So it's not one of those things where someone's upshifting forty times in a <laughs> you know in one quarter mile. Yeah, there's know. there's definitely things they you can see they that they do stuff like that. Good tech advising. <laughs> Uh, counting the number of magazine bullets in a magazine is always a good thing in movies in my book. That's the reality. <laughs> what are your, what are your thoughts on, um, on gone in 60 seconds? You know, it's been so long since I've seen that one that I don't, I don't even really remember it. Nicholas Cage, right? Yeah. I, the, the thing I liked about that again was the, the, they really centered on the cars. They kind of fixed it on the cars, especially the one specific Cobra, which was a gorgeous car until the end. 
I tend to just annoy people who are watching movies with me that are not about cars, but have car chases. Cause I'm picking out the, the stupid things that like in the rock where, <laughs> you, have, uh, you know, a car chase between a Hummer H one, which is like the slowest vehicle ever made and a Ferrari F three fifty five. And then even the editing is bad where like the Hummer crashes into a, you know, an apple cart or something and comes to almost to a complete stop. And then a split second later, it's flying down the road, like that kind of stuff. I'm like, come on now. Nah, that wouldn't, or, you know, in Dazed and Confused, there's a, there's a like 70, you know, it's supposed to be 76 Camaro sitting there, but it's got wheels from like a 1982, the next generation. <laughs> like, oh, come on. Who missed that? A lot of people would uh, probably wouldn't pick up on that, but I don't even yeah. think I picked up on that one. Um, what are some of the vehicles that you've been lucky enough to, to review what are some of your favorite ones first before I go into any of the other part of that question? Um, one of my, my, my stock answer for that for about the past 10 years has been the Ferrari 458 Special because I really don't think that, I don't think internal combustion cars are going to get any better than that or, or they really haven't. I mean, they've gotten faster, right? but that car had a screaming 9,000 RPM V8. It just sounded so good. It looked so good. It was excellent to drive. I mean, that's the car that if I was going to have, you know, one car to park in my garage and just stare at and drive, then the 2009, 2000, whatever it was around then, the 458 Special, that was a, just an amazing car. And since then, I mean, I've driven, um, you know, Bugatti, Veyron, and uh, Bigfoot monster truck. <laughs> <laughs> big, um, big difference. Uh, that That's truly covering the spectrum there. Yeah. I mean, you got to, one aspect of the job is that you've got to be comfortable driving a lot of different things. And uh, so Bigfoot, I've driven a, an old Formula One car. Ford's um, Le Mans racing uh, GTLM car from the most recent uh, campaign. Once they retired those cars, the Ford GT, they brought a few, they brought one to a uh, VIR and got to drive that, which was just the, the most insane, you know, make you feel like a hero car ever. Like, <laughs> wow, I'm really good at driving. No, you're just driving a Le Mans race car. So, um, yeah, I've, I get to kind of talk my way into <laughs> some, some pretty good rides, but yeah, that Ferrari is one that will be stuck in my brain for a long time. And then I'm also the electric stuff that's coming out now is that's usually what I'm excited about. Like I was really excited to drive a Rivian. Um, I'm looking forward to driving a lucid air when I get a chance to drive one of those. Um, but the, the, the ones that, the ones that stick out in the past, yeah. Bugatti Veyron, uh, the, um, uh, God, now I'm drawing a blank. The, the McLaren SLR 722, I drove 206 miles an hour in Dubai. So. I was going to ask, where do you, where do you typically get to, to do these test drives? Is it a closed track or, or kind of all over the place? It depends on, so what usually happens is the manufacturers, when they have a new model, they want to show off, they have an event for it somewhere and they invite people to come and drive it. So that could be anywhere. In the case of that Mercedes, it was in Dubai and there wasn't a track or anything. Um, they just turned me loose with it. Out, and there was, there was a road out to a hotel 
called the Babel Shams Hotel. I think that they pretty much built this beautiful road just to go out to this one hotel and it's like 20 miles and it's straight and it was brand new and there's nothing on it. So I just went out there. I was like, well, if I'm going to just air this thing out, this is the place to do it. There's no cars. There's no, there's no nothing except sand on both sides of the road. And so I went out there and, uh, and did that. Um, and then I somehow found my way back the car. I remember it didn't have a navigation system because I asked one of the German guys before I left, I was like, Hey, I, you know, I, I don't exactly know my way around Dubai very well. Um, does this thing have a navy system? And he said, this is not a Lexus. <laughs> <laughs> and I went on my way. Um, so there is that aspect of it too. There's certain cars that maybe, uh, maybe weren't the best cars, but I had some kind of interest in, now, I mean, that car is an amazing car, but yeah. um, I've probably driven other cars that are better cars, but I didn't have that kind of a crazy experience with them that kind of burned into my brain. I was going to ask, what are some of the cars that will we'll say underwhelmed you from what your expectations were to what reality was for it? Um, the cars that underwhelm tend to be ones where they just missed their own mark blatantly didn't try hard enough mm-hmm. uh, or they or they um revise something in such a way that it's worse than it was before like for instance i the first time i drove a mitsubishi outlander i was doing a story where i had to drive I was driving across the West and driving different cars from stop to stop and kind of an overview of the, you know, what's new for Esquire. And I got behind on my itinerary and had to drive a Mitsubishi Outlander a thousand miles in one day. Um, and I think, I, I think there was some kind of Stockholm syndrome where I, I bonded with that car because then I was like, I got to buy one of these. I really liked it. And so my wife and I bought one and I, I still had put 60,000 miles on it and really enjoyed it. And then I drove the, they refreshed it, redesigned it. And the next one, you know, the one I had had a tailgate that would flip down like a split tailgate, like a BMW X5. I was like, Oh, that's cool. You can tailgate. They got rid of that. You know, it had, uh, you could like torque bias, send torque, more torque to the rear end. So, you know, you could have slide the ass end around in the, in the snow. Right. They got rid of, you know, they kind of like, they just Dumped it made down. it. Look, I don't know why they did that. Like, why do you get rid of the cool things that made me buy it? But that can happen. Or it's just a car that um, sometimes there's a car that's aimed at a certain audience and that's not me. Right. And, and there are a lot of cars like that. You've got to keep that in mind when you're reviewing them. Like I am not the Lexus ES350 buyer. I don't want a car that's completely, you know, numb sensory deprivation chamber on wheels I want something a little spicier, but I got to try to remember while I'm driving a car like that, that this isn't aimed at me. Is it doing a good job at the person for the person that it is aimed at? Um, So that's the kind of thing. What more often what happens is that there's certain aspects of an otherwise good car that are not as well executed. You know, no car is perfect no matter how expensive it is. And even the most um, finely fettled mainstream cars, they can have just goofy stuff going on. Like I just drove a, uh, I think it was a Hyundai. Yes. <laughs> I can make sure I'm <laughs> maligning the right car. It was a Hyundai and they have a dual clutch transmission. So it's not an automatic, 
it's not, it, it is an automatic, it drives like an automatic, but it's basically, you know, a manual transmission on the inside with two clutches. And it just had on certain speeds, it would shift like it would, it would shift like my Camaro hitting second gear. I was like, wham. I was like, wow, this thing is, has some goofy tuning that needs to be addressed. And, you know, otherwise good car, but it's got that, the new Volkswagen GTI, great car to drive, but they redesigned the interior in such a way that there are no buttons anymore. It's all this capacitive touch stuff. And it's like, they tried to make it look like an iPhone and it's just horrible to use. Got it. And there's, so there's things like that that tend to be the, the uh, aggravation points, but there aren't too many cars now that are just like, oh, that whole car is horrible. You know, like the, there's too much competition for right. that kind of stuff to make it through. Do you, um, do you have a, a, like a set metric for when you're, I guess, rating cars and looking into them, like how they shift, how the transmission is, do you you break it down on strictly mechanics and then the, the aesthetics, or is it just kind of a car by car basis? It's a case by case basis because there's usually something to focus on with any given vehicle. Like I'm driving the, um, so right now I'm driving the Kia Sorento plug-in hybrid and the new Ford Raptor, which has on 37 inch tires. So the new thing for the Raptor is the big tires. How do, you know, how does that work? Um, and for the Kia, it's more, does it make any sense to buy this plug-in hybrid that costs 50 grand when the regular hybrid costs significantly less and, um, is it going to be quicker? Is it going to get you that much better mileage? Like who is this for? Can you drive it in electric mode? So that car is less about the fact that it's a Kia Sorento because mm-hmm. we've covered Kia Sorentos, but we haven't covered this one and why you would get this one or not. Right. So that's, you know, there, there's usually something to, there's an angle. You got to look for the angle on everything because you also got to remember there's, you know, a hundred other people writing about the same car. So why are you going to read my review? Right. To jump into your more recent article, the the top 10 for 2020 for car and driver, how do the cars get divvied up? Um, is it kind of like drawing straws? Is it by seniority who gets to pick? Or do you kind of just sit down around the table and say, well, I want to cover this car or these cars? How does, how does that list? You mean how do, how do the cars get picked or how do they assign who writes about what? A little of both. I, I was curious how you kind of all come together and figure, well, these are the 10 cars that are going to be on this list and, gets to write about which car that uh that is a very extensive process that involves a lot of standing around and arguing at a boy (laughs) scout camp in the wilds of michigan um they get all the they get every car together that they think of that could possibly be a candidate um and it's usually something new anything that won last year is automatically up for consideration and um, we get them all together in one place and we all convene and we all take turns driving the 10 best loop, which is, you know, the Michigan, the Michigan version of a curvy hilly road <laughs> <laughs> and uh, try not to have any locals come follow us back and want to beat our asses or have the police follow us back as I had happened one year. <laughs> um and so you just drive everything, drive all the cars as much as you can, and then everybody writes their notes down, everybody rates them, and then you know you compile all the all the all the scores, and then you see what shakes out. So it's usually there usually aren't huge surprises because we're all talking to each other, and you know if um, 
the new, uh, you know, the new Bronco is really, everybody's loving it. Then, you know, you're okay. Everyone's going to give this a good score. That's going right. to get on there or something like a Porsche Boxster Cayman. That's good every year. Right you now, know, unless, if, unless they did something to screw it up and that's going to make <laughs> cut again, you know? And then from there, once, once the cars are picked, then it's a matter of, uh, you know, editors deciding, you know, who's going to write what. And it, it, it's partially a function of who's driven what, right? Because maybe everybody didn't drive every car there. And, and this year, this year I didn't actually make it to Michigan. So I had something else going on. So, um, it became a question. I wrote, I wrote two of the entries, the Kia Telluride and the Subaru BRZ, and I'd, uh, driven both of them. So that was how that happened. You know, it's kind of, you know, it's not like that sophisticated of a process. It's just who's driven what and, and, uh, who can, who can get it done in time. Can, can you fill us in a little bit about the time you were followed by the cops back? <laughs> Oh, I was in a uh, Porsche Boxster with the top down and reveling in the glorious sounds of uh, winding out the flat six on one part of that 10 best loop. And I, the problem is, <laughs> as you get deeper into the day, people have been ripping down this road all day, possibly at above the speed limit. Maybe some of the locals have called the police and alerted them that this is going on. Got it. And then eventually one is going to go set up camp somewhere along there. And I was the unlucky party who... Um, met uh that guy just after he had set up <laughs> and i wasn't even going that fast it was just it was loud because i was in second gear um and uh this is an argument i've used with the police before i with the four gt once in a tunnel in boston it's like I, you know i know it sounded like i was going fast but i was only in second gear i was just revving it up a little bit just to listen to it so he actually didn't give me a ticket but he did follow me back to the camp and then it was like I was like the shameful one rolling in with my, with my, uh, yeah, by the scruff of my neck, like, look what I found out there. And he gave everybody a little lecture about taking it easy on the 10 best loop, but he didn't give me a ticket and he didn't, you know, I don't think he gave anybody else a ticket either, but that's the problem with public roads. That's why I do like tracks. I mean, I wasn't going crazy or anything, but you know, there are cops, there are other cars. If you're out on a track or the Bonneville salt flats or something, then you don't have to worry about that. Right. I was having a conversation with somebody last week, I think about, you know, you have all these expensive cars, like the, the new vet, the perennial vet, um, high end cars. It's, you don't have the space or the regular availability of environment to really use that car to what it's built for. And, that's high speeds. It, to me, it kind of seems like a waste of money unless you really have that kind of fuck you money where you can literally buy whatever you want just for the sake of buying it and saying, I own it. And I'm trying to, because I'm in the process of trying to figure out what car we're going to buy next for my family vehicle. So it's got to be something that's a little more practical. Um, what are your thoughts on how car manufacturers kind of cater to, to make a car that's appealing for everybody, but still being practical. Uh, any insight on that? Well, to, to get at what you, part of what you said earlier, nobody is going to hopefully go take a, a new 911 turbo out on a public road and, and hit its 205 mile an hour top speed. But that doesn't mean that you can't use its performance. Right. 
Um, you know, the new Corvette does zero to 60 in 2.8 seconds. You know, go out to a 55 mile an hour road and stop and you can go zero to 60 in 2.8 seconds. You're only going five miles an hour over the speed limit. You can do that. Uh, that's, that's why, um, cars that are feel good going slow or feel like have a lot of feedback and are rewarding to drive even when you're not going a million miles an hour are usually very popular. Like that's, that's one of the, one of the genius things about a Porsche Boxster Cayman or 911 for that matter. Even when you're going slow, the steering feels good. Right. Like everything feels, you feel connected to the road. You don't have to be going that fast. You know, you're in something that could go that fast. Um, and to segue into the second part of what you were saying, family cars or practical or practical vehicles that have a little bit of that magic tend to sort of, uh, like those are the cars that we tend to find on the 10 best list. You know, if there's an everyday car that still strives to drive a little bit better than it needs to, then that's appealing because, you know, just because you have, you need a seven, you need a seven seat SUV. Well, Look at the Kia Telluride because it's beautiful inside. It's trying way harder than it has to. Looks like a Range Rover, basically. And it's really good to drive. It's yeah. not a it's not a slob. It feels more expensive than it is in just about every way. So that's kind of what we're looking for. And in my own in my own life, uh, we bought a Chrysler Pacifica plug-in hybrid last year. And the Pacifica, once you get over the uh, the minivan idea, mm. once you decide, okay, I can I I can get behind a minivan. This thing's awesome. Power doors, all right. Uh, then the Pacifica is, to my mind, the best one, and the only one that has a plug-in hybrid. And again, it's something that is sneaky good to drive. Yeah, we had one in our long-term fleet. By the t- at the we test before at the beginning and the end. At the end, it pulled like 0.89 g on the skid pad because the tires are a little bit worn. And that was more than the BMW M3 that we had had uh, earlier in the 2000s. Wow. Pull. So, yeah. So, you, you catch someone on an on ramp in a hurry in their Chrysler Pacifica, they, could, they might be able to hang with you better than you'd expect. <laughs> I actually fell in love with the, uh, it was a little bit more of the sporty version of a Dodge Caravan uh, a couple years ago. I drove it and it was just, it felt the nice. RT- <sighs> Honestly, it was a rental and I don't remember yeah, what. There was one that had like uh, red stitching on the seats or something. They called it. It was the RT. They called it the Man Van. Yeah, I think that. I did been take it. one of those out on a. I did take one of those out on a track at uh, New Jersey Motorsports Park, and you know it wasn't really a appropriate for a track, but it did its <laughs> best. <laughs> I think people need to get over over that. But that was you know kind of go back to your point about it's it's really how it feels how the car feels going slower is what really makes it. And that was the kind of counter argument thrown to me is you're not necessarily paying for a name. You're paying for the fact that it is just a, a better machine. It, it's smoother. The, the, the steering's a little more responsive. It's, it's just better to feel inside. Plus all the creature comforts that come along with that. Yeah. Not, and not every company does that very well. I mean, we're always recommending Mazdas to people because, a Mazda CX-9, beautiful interior, great to drive. CX-5, same deal. The Mazda 3, same deal. They all have a little bit more feistiness to them than you would expect out of a mainstream 
family car. Yeah, I. And they're not, but you know, they get outsold by the, you know, every year the Nissan Rogue will outsell every Mazda by a gazillion. So uh, <laughs> not everybody wants that. Yeah, I, I had a Mazda 3 hatchback. It was a, I think it was an 05 Mazda 3 hatchback and absolutely loved that thing. It felt like a little rocket and it was, it was awesome. What are some of the big opportunities as a writer that somebody would have in the automotive industry aside from review? Is, is there any other aspect of, of writing that could be employed? Um, other than reviews, I mean, my, I'd say my uh, job breaks down into there'd be reviews or commentary or um, feature stories where the goal is to come up with the craziest idea you can think of and then see if somebody wants you to actually go do it. <laughs> um, so I spend a fair amount of time thinking those kind of thoughts and that's how I end up with stuff like I'm going to FedEx myself a package in New York and race it down to Miami in a Bentley while wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something you'd see on top gear. Which I did do. Um, <laughs> did and you did beat, beat the package. <laughs> did did beat the package down to Miami. How long did it take um, you to get down there? 12-ish I, hours? I forget now. We left, let's see, we left as it was getting dark in New York, but it was the summertime. And then we got to, pulled into South Beach at like 5 in the morning. It was still kind of dark out there. That's pretty, so we did it, pretty fast, did actually. Completely overnight, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um did that with Alex Roy, who's a specialist in that kind of thing, or he used to do that kind of thing quite a bit. Cannonball and runs. We had, yeah, we had laser laser jammers on the car and uh, a CB antenna so we could listen to truckers. <laughs> all the little all the little tweaks to, to get the information so you know when to speed up and when to slow down. Yep, and we had a... Uh, we had a bottle of champagne with us in the car and then we'd FedExed ourselves the glasses to have a toast when we got down there. So the, <laughs> you, the FedEx truck rolled up to the parking lot where we sent our, where we sent our stuff and then handed us the glasses. <laughs> so anyway, there's stuff like that where you try to think what's the, what's a silly thing that I could do, but it might actually work. And not all of them work. Like I had one, I was, I was trying to see if I could drive fast enough to go back in time. Cause there's a really narrow time zone. Please tell that, me it was, this was in a DeLorean. <laughs> I think it was, it was in whatever I could get my hands on, but it didn't really, the math didn't quite work. There's like one part of Arizona, I think that doesn't observe daylight savings time. So half the year, there's this like little narrow sliver of a time zone where it was still too wide to get across and go back in time. But, you know, I'm thinking these thoughts. Got it. What are, what are some of the big things? There's a lot of talk now about, you know, car prices being so high because, you know, production's down from last year and the year before. What are some of the, the challenges you see in the automotive world in general right now? Well, the challenge for anyone buying a car is that the prices suck and uh, used cars are somehow more expensive than new cars. And my advice, I just wrote a column about this, was, you know, don't have your heart set on anything. Like if you really, why do you really want a Toyota Tacoma that bad? You know, yeah. when I went through this with uh, my brother-in-law that I said, okay, you really want a Toyota Tacoma. You've had one for 20 years, but the dealer wants 5,000 over sticker for the one Tacoma that he's going to get in next month because of this supply shortage going on right now. Meanwhile, the Nissan dealer has four new frontiers which is arguably better than a Tacoma. They just redesigned it. Why don't you consider a Frontier? And they're willing to deal on it. 
And so he went and he, he bought a Frontier and he loves it. So it's uh, hit him where they ain't, you know, like that if you're buying a car, be willing to keep an open mind and consider things that you might not have considered. Um, and I think this is all going to, it's all going to work itself out. Anytime we have one of these conditions that seems bizarre and feels permanent, it never is. Right. The, the pendulum will swing back the other way. And we're in a really weird moment right now where my sister-in-law bought a, a brand new Bronco Sport that her uh, daughter promptly came home from college and drove it for 10 minutes and totaled it. Oh, and she's okay. But good. they uh, now they're like, girl, great. Now how are we going to replace that? Because there's no cars. And the Ford dealer has a new actual Bronco coming in or a couple of them that are going to be sold at list price, he says. And meanwhile, the insurance company gave her more money than she paid for the Bronco Sport because used prices, so she bought it new and the used prices are like $6,000 more than that. So she's getting actually more money than she paid for the vehicle back from the accident. So she's going to get a Bronco. And that's why I was just out giving my nephew manual transmission lessons in my 2003 Ram because the Bronco is a manual. Got it. So, yeah. yeah. I had but, my, I had my kids out uh, a few months ago. They're 13 and 16 or at the time they were um, 12 and four, uh, 15 just to give them an idea of what it's like to get behind a wheel. It's a manual. I want them to know how to drive a manual. So it's, they can get in anything and drive theoretically. Um, my youngest kid surprised me. He had a nice smooth transition of the clutch and the gas, and it was a nice takeoff. And then he coasted and all right, I'm done and got out of the car. But, uh, which car, uh, we have a 2019 Toyota Corolla hatchback. Oh, nice. I, my wife, we, we had an issue eight or nine years ago. Unfortunately, we lost our, our Mazda that we, we love so dearly, uh, to an accident. Um, nobody really injured or severely injured outside of my youngest having his face broken, uh, broken jaw and broken cheek. Um, yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my cousin was driving. She was a stop waiting to clear traffic and somebody just plowed into her at like 60 miles an hour to, as she was at a dead standstill. Um, we took the money from that and bought another car. And later on that year, that car got totaled because my, we didn't clearly didn't learn a lesson and let my niece drive it. And she hit black ice and totaled it. So we took that money and we're like, no more automatic cars. Everything's got to be manual. So we've kind of been sticking with manuals for the last few years. And it was time to get a new car. And we saw that. And it was one of the few that, that they had on the lot that still had a manual transmission. It looked good. It looked a little very similar to the Mazda uh, three that we had and had it. And my wife loves it. The Corolla is one of those cars that, again, it fits into the category of trying harder than they had to. Yeah. Um, like the, I drove one of those back to back with a Lexus. I forget which Lexus, but I noticed that the steering wheel controls on the Corolla are the same as the Lexus. Like the the um, the adaptive cruise and all that kind of stuff. I was like, this is the same Lexus gear on this, but this is a Corolla that costs much less yeah. and it's fun to drive. So. Yeah. I noticed there's like... Um... Toyota and Lexus are pretty much the same thing, only what you're paying a little bit more for the slightly more feature comforts that are added to the the Lexus. Uh, what is it? Um, I think Ford and Volvo, very different, but kind of the same. 
uh, Nissan well, Acura. Ford, Ford used to own Volvo, That's but now they're now Volvo is owned by Geely, and yeah, Ford Ford divested itself of its fancy brands. But yeah, yeah they used to have. There used to be a like companion brands. Yeah, yeah. Before I get into my my fun questions to to end things, where can people read up on you or follow you for uh, that matter? Car and driver, get a, get a subscription to the old print magazine. That's what I say. Or <laughs> cardriver.com. Plenty of people read that. There's no, uh, uh, I don't think you need a subscription. I think you can just read it. Um, you need, I think you do need a subscription though, maybe to, if you want to be a commenter and tell me how dumb I am, <laughs> um, or great I am. And, uh, I don't know. I'm on Twitter. I hate Facebook and avoid it. Um, but sometimes I'm on that if I have to be. <laughs> <laughs> Nature of the beast, I'm, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's dumb because I'm on Instagram, which is, I know, the same company. But <laughs> it seems less odious yeah. somehow. Yeah, It's less less poisonous. So, yeah, I've got my, it's just um, at Ezra Dyer with my random, it's usually just, oh, I saw a weird car, saw one on Craigslist. It's not usually stuff that I'm driving. I mean, unless there's something really interesting about what I'm driving. Right. Um, because I don't like to just be like, Hey, look what I'm driving. You know, like, well, who cares? Good for you. <laughs> You're lucky. <laughs> you got to drive Bugattis and some really nice things. Well, if I'm driving a Bugatti, I might flex with an Instagram post on that, but you know, if it's a standard, uh, mom and pop kind of car, or a conventional car doesn't have to be praised upon like a, Gotti or a nice Porsche. So people are often more interested in the accessible stuff, which yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It's nice to have that fantasy and the idea of, of what it's like and to maybe experience it once or twice. But I can see why people want to know more about the, the tangible. So back to time, time for the question of, of what would you rather? Uh, you can answer it. You can pass it. They're just for fun. Uh, would you be rather, would you rather be an unknown superhero or an infamous villain? Uh, well, I don't give a crap about being famous, so I guess I'd go the unknown superhero. I mean, I, that, uh, notoriety does not really, or fame doesn't really interest me. That's why I'm so like half-assed about my social media presence. <laughs> you know, I, I, I used to be very minorly uh, locally famous in Boston, I would say, because my, you know, pre-social media, my photo ran with my column. So people right. would recognize me on, on the street and stuff. And uh, it's more just awkward for me. <laughs> I, I'm in the... <laughs> on the, the, time, the times when that would happen, because then I don't know, you know, what am, am I supposed to be entertaining now all of a sudden? I, you know... <laughs> Don't force me to be usually, funny. Usually just like spacing out in your own head and then somebody says, hey, and then you're like, oh. Uh. <laughs> now I have to remember what you think I'm supposed to act like. Um, so anyway, yes, I'd go for the, uh, I'd be an anonymous do-gooder for sure. Yeah, that, that's me. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, of doing harm and being a villain in any way, shape, or form. So, Next question. Would you rather watch nothing but Hallmark movies or nothing but horror movies? That's a tough one because I'm not really a fan of either of them, but I would go horror, I guess. I, I like some American horror story now and then, but I don't really like scary stuff. <laughs> why, why do I want to be scared? Yeah. But I guess I'd rather be scared than bored. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm the same way. My wife kind of 
watch those, those Hallmark style movies around Christmas and I get tired of them really quickly. <clears throat> so yeah, I'm I'm on, I'm bored with with the uh, the horror movies, and we'll go with the last one. Would you rather run a hundred miles an hour or fly at twenty miles an hour? Hmm, that's a good one. Like I have this capability. Yeah. How high can I fly? Just is it like? I guess I high enough for you to maintain consciousness. <laughs> I can just fly, but I only get, can go slow, or I can run a hundred miles an hour. Huh. I think it'd probably be more advantageous to be able to fly even if it wasn't that quick. Cause then like, if I want to go out to an Island or something, I could, um, you know, maybe I'm not in that much of a rush. <laughs> I think that would blow people's minds more if I could fly than I could run really fast because humans can run, you know, in the 20 something mile an hour range. So running a hundred granted, that would be crazy, but I can go a hundred on the ground. I can go get my 2003 Ram and probably go hundred if I want right now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I can't, but I can't fly. Right. So I'm gonna go flying. I'd rather fly too. You can get to places that you can't with the vehicle or most vehicles, without changing vehicles, because they had someone found a that hybrid to go in air, on the ground, and in water in one. Well, running 100 miles an hour would just be a change in degree of what I can do already. You know, I can probably, I can probably already run like 25. I mean, right? I don't know. I haven't tried it <laughs> lately, but. Um, Whereas flying, yeah, that's, that would be, uh, I can't believe I had to think about that much. Flying, obviously. Yeah. It's like one of those things, invisibility or flying. I, I think I'd probably do the flying thing. Yeah. Any parting words? Drive safe. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> Go fast, take chances. That works. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon, send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.